As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I'm not going to abide by all laws, no. But I do have good morals. The whole thing's a tragedy, but the fact is people fall off baits. Plenty of people fall off baits. This is unfortunately a classic case of a very normal family finding themselves caught up in extraordinary circumstances. At the heart of it are a lot of unanswered questions. Some of the answers seem painfully obvious, although to a loving sister, there are some possibilities just too painful to consider. Louise Witten joins us to tell us about her brother Andrew, sailor, surfer, adventurer, who disappeared from his yacht Kailia in a remote stretch of the Pacific Ocean in 2007. He was sailing with another man at the time, and as far as Andrew's friends and family are concerned, That man has yet to provide a satisfactory account of what happened on that trip. I'm the eldest, and then Andrew was 17 months younger, so we were only ever a year behind at school and through primary school, high school, etc. And then there was a gap of eight years to my sister Miranda, 
and two years later, Rosie. So Andrew and I were at high school when they were born. We all uh, were all born and raised in country New South Wales by the sea. Andrew always had a love of the sea. We used to go fishing a lot together, but most of it was his surfing and he became a very accomplished windsurfer and sailor and, yeah, the ocean was his life. As a grown-up, did he, was fishing his occupation? Did he manage to yes, make the he, ocean his? He was, um, he was a tuna fisherman, you know, the ones with the big poles that, that haul in and throw them over their shoulders. Um, he also did some charter boat stuff. We, our family had a farm and when my parents retired off the farm, um, they actually gave it to my brother many, many years ahead of them passing away. It's like, you may as well have it. He ran the farm for quite a bit. Uh, but his passion, it was only about or oh, maybe half an hour from the ocean. So he ended up doing a deal with an accountant friend and he signed the title deeds of the farm over to this guy who in turn provided Andrew with the finance to buy his boat, his dream boat. His plan was to do enough charters and make enough money that he'd be able to buy the farm back and he would have both farm and boat, but it never, ever went as successfully as he'd hoped. When he bought the boat, he spent most of the time um, in Coffs Harbour. They have a, a big safe harbour there and a very good school friend lived there. And whenever Andrew needed some work, he'd go and see Pete and Pete would give him some work and he'd save enough money to fill his boat up with fuel and do whatever work needed to be done on it and then off he'd go again. So, Did he have a partner? No, a couple of times he did. He was a bit of a loner. He had a bad stutter. We've got so many letters and cards from people and most of them refer to him as Stutz. That was a bit of an impediment, well, very much of an impediment when it came to the social side of your life. He could sing without stuttering. Perfect writer, wrote amazing, well, his logbooks are just a, a joy to read. He had lots of friends. He was very strong, fit, healthy. Um, yeah, he was just a good bloke. When he was a teenager... He got involved, he used to smoke dope and he was in Bali and he got caught with um, with some marijuana and his passport had expired and he got deported and he had a, a history of or was recorded as a crime. And in Indonesia? Yes. And then wow. in, again in the UK, when he left Bali to go to the UK, he took with him some Buddha sticks. I don't know what they were worth or anything, but he was um, 19 at the time. Hmm and never allowed to go back to the UK, had a record, and it was always known by the local authorities that Andrew had got, you know, involved in drugs. But um, when, you, when you have a boat, you have to let the authorities know when you're leaving port and what your destination is, and when you get to that destination, you have to let them know that you've arrived. So he let them know um, just before Christmas in 2006 that he's, he was leaving Coffs, he was going to... Tahiti, and from Tahiti he planned to go to the Caribbean to the World Cup cricket. I had contact with him in the December and he was just getting work done on his boat, getting everything all sort of tied up, and that Simon, this guy Simon, was with him, but he didn't. He just said, I've got a mate sailing with me. He didn't say who he was or what he did. This guy is Simon Golding. Yes. And you, so you didn't know anything about this bloke at the time? No, didn't know anything at all. And as it turns out, a lot of Andrew's friends, they... They knew that he knew this guy, Simon, that was going to go with him. All Andrew's friends on, in the Coffs area were all, you know, manual labourers or blue-collar sort of workers where Simon was a bit of a cool dude, pretty slick, um, moved in all the right circles, no one really knew what He's he did. quite a bit younger. Yes. Quite a bit younger yes, than Yes, he was. Andrew, he was yeah. um, I think he was 38. Mm. Yeah, so Simon was... At a loose end, loved sailing. He didn't have a job. I don't think he's had a job for a long, long time. And he was able to go with Andrew. So they went to Pitwater, got the boat ready and sailed out soon after Christmas. And they got to Tahiti in the September. And Simon went on to visit some friends in the UK and Europe. Andrew had always loved Tahiti, loved surfing, and fishing, and that's just where he chilled out. And then they were, according to one of Andrew's letters, they, he really should have been headed for home. He didn't have much money, should have been headed for home, but Simon said he had a bit of money and basically said you can live at sea anyway, catch fish and, 
you know, drink water and we'll survive. So we're going to, we're going to go to Galapagos. So they left at Christmas time in 2006 and I found out in the February of that year, I was in Melbourne playing bowls. We got a phone call from Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to say that my brother had been reported missing, missing at sea. By Golding. Yes. had He'd reported it in some online forum thing to New South Wales Police that a man had got, that his mate had gone missing. He didn't know who to tell or what to do. And the New South Wales Police contacted Foreign Affairs and they got in contact with us. And, mm. I mean, it was such a shock. When I said, well, what, what are we going to do? We have to get a search going. And they went, well, it's too late to search. He went missing a month ago. So it was a month from, from when he went missing to him being reported to the authorities. So any chance of, you know, finding him was no way. So where did, where did he say he'd gone missing and, and all of that? I mean, as far as I'm hearing, he could be anywhere from Tahiti to Galapagos to yes. the West Indies to back to Sydney. Like there's a lot Huge of... Huge amount of ocean. So I said to the authorities, this is my mobile number. You obviously got it. Get Simon to give me a call. I need to... I'm the eldest in the family, so I've obviously got to pass yeah. on the news to my parents and my sisters. Oh, and So he phoned and it was... um. It was something like five o'clock in the morning and I remember it was dark and I'm sitting out on, on the steps of the staircase at the hotel. Anyway, I just said to him, if I give you my email address, can you put send me an email with all this? I'm trying to write in the dark. I'm not making any sense of what I'm writing. So he said, yeah, yeah, quite willingly. His story was that they had been becalmed for a few days beforehand. There wasn't very much. What does that mean? Mean not enough wind to to make good progress. So you need to use your engine, and in using your engine, it means that you use fuel, and you're way out in the middle of nowhere. So you need to be conserving. Um, Andrew's logbook talks. He used to write in his logbook four times a day, not always at the same time. But when you wake in the morning, you check your sails. Often of a night time, your sails would be down, and you might just be drifting. But you'd take your bearings, you knew how far you'd travelled, you'd write that in the book. In the logbook, you'd write um, the day, the date, the time, the conditions, the the wind speed, whether it was sunny, what the, the tide speed was as well. They had a measurement of that. And that way you could map where you were and any change in course in your waking hours, that's what you do. And because they hadn't been like sailing at full speed and full speed for his big boat, wasn't what you'd call racing, but it was, you know, moving along. It means that your energy is not required to do too much because you're just bobbing about on the water. So according to Simon, he was down in his cabin, bunk area, reading a book and sleeping, and he came up at about 5.38pm and couldn't see Andrew. Did a lap of the boat, called out for him and got no response. His only ever written recording of Andrew's disappearance was this bit of paper and it says the boat name, the latitude and longitude, 538, and then it says MOB, man overboard. That's all he wrote. He then says that he um, did a three-day and night grid search around and around or square in a grid searching for him and expanding further of the grid. And then there was sign of a storm hitting, so he had to stop his search. So he just, Simon never ever claimed to have any sailing knowledge, loved sailing but no no great knowledge. So he continued on. So he had no sailing knowledge but but he was able to perform a grid search for three days and sail yep. home. yeah. Now, where were they in the world? Had they made it to the Galapagos? No, by this state? no, no, they hadn't. So they were en route to the Galapagos or Easter Island is what Andrew's um, logbook said. That must be the, the main reference point when it comes to, you know, point A to point B. Right. So um, Andrew went missing about 200 kilometres off Pitcairn Island and it's a very small, very rocky outbreak of an island not that far from Easter Island, that's where he went missing. And Simon says 
Because their plan was to go to Galapagos, he thought he would continue that journey because that's what they were going to be doing. Well, uh, hello, I think something major has changed. Whatever plans you might have had really shouldn't exist anymore. Do they have a radio on board? Yeah, there was um, a, a high-frequency radio, a low-band low radio, uh, what you call an EPIRB, uh, electronic positioning emergency beacon thing. Uh, he didn't let that off. So he continued on to Galapagos because that was the plan. And I'm here to tell you that from where he was at Pitcairn to Galapagos was 4,870 kilometres alone on a boat that he claimed was taking on water. After the storm, the, sh- the sails were shredded. Um, the toilet wasn't working anymore. Yeah, dreadful, dreadful conditions. Plus, you would, you would imagine traumatised because the bloke you were with has gone missing. Yeah. Like- so what he did in his email to me, outlining everything, outlining everything, he mentioned this yacht that he came across called Cutty Hunk. And that turns out to be Simon's downfall because it took me four months to track down Cuddy Hunk. It was a yacht skippered by a lady in New Zealand and they had gone to some island group to participate in some yacht racing and they left New Zealand at much the same time as Andrew and Simon left Tahiti and she was elated to come across another vessel. They hadn't seen another vessel apart from a big container ship since they left New Zealand. So they've gone on their radio, hello, 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 and came up alongside and he told them that his mate had gone missing. Mm. He never referred to Andrew as the owner of the boat. It was just his mate. My mate's gone missing. And they were in shock. What can we do? They had, I think, eight or ten people on board and they said, we'll give you a couple of our crew and we'll sail in unison to, I think they might have been going to Easter Island. No, 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 I'm all right. I'm okay. Um, have you been able to, to let the authorities know? No, I haven't. I want to do that myself in person. And they said, you're welcome to use our radio. No, it's okay. And they then went, well, if you're sure there's nothing we can do? He said, no, it's all under control. So they continued to sail. And Irene, the lady, the skipper, she said after about an hour, she went, that's not right. There's something wrong. That guy is obviously in shock. He does need help. He's denied our assistance, but we're going back. So they circled around and went back again and went through the same offering of assistance, etc. and he declined again. No, I'm all right. I'll make my own way. Thank you very much. And off they went. It took me months to make contact because I found out the where the her yacht was registered, which is in Canterbury in New Zealand, mm. and I made contact with that yacht club and they said, oh, no, uh, privacy, we can't give you any details about them. And I, of course. I told them, I said, I'll send you an email I'll, I'll do anything. All I just need to know is, is like to make contact with them to see what had happened. And then I, on my last attempt, one of the guys said, look, I'll give you a hint as to who they are. They have a very big furniture manufacturing business in So they Googled away, thank goodness for Google, found out the name of the company, phoned and explained who I was and why I was ringing. And the guy on the other end of the phone was in shock. He was their manager. She and her husband, the owner, Irene and her husband, and crew had returned only a couple of days earlier. And he said the New Zealand television did a story on her and her exploits sailing, at which time she mentioned the shock of coming across another vessel and one of the fellows on board had gone missing and how they tried to render help and it was declined and, and, and. He said that was only two days ago and you're ringing me now. So he put me in contact with her and she was amazing. Her evidence at the inquest was crucial to us, we believe, being able to prove that he didn't search. Her logs were as um, as clear and concise and accurate as what Andrew's were. So she's recording their positions. So they're sailing, 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 sailing and going in the same direction and Simon's back here doing a three-day search and then he sails and he meets them there, he could never, ever, the boat couldn't have gone fast enough to get to that point. No. So his claim of having searched for three days was thrown out the window. You couldn't have done. 
once I get the call and the email from Simon, the boat is in Galapagos, he is in Galapagos, he is okay. He took Andrew's passport to the maritime offices and he has Andrew's passport stamped as though he was with him. Well, he wasn't. Why did you do that? And it's like, well, I just wanted to let the authorities know that there were two of us. And it became evident within about 48 hours that Simon was going to head off from the Galapagos in the boat. And I went, no, you're not going. I didn't obviously know him, but I said, no, you're not going anywhere. You've told us that the sails are ripped. You've told us that the engine has taken on water, water in the fuel. No, please, we've already lost one life. We're not doing another. And it's not his boat. Exactly, exactly. So he's like, no, 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 no. I don't know why you're doubting me. I just want to get the boat back to Australia, back to the family. And I'm like, well, we've got plenty of time to work that out. No, it's not going anywhere. And after that, he started to turn nasty. He said that we were accusing him of stuff that he didn't do and I'm just trying to do the best by the family. And anyway, I just said, well, sorry, but but no. So they conducted a little uh, inquiry over there and they were satisfied that there was no foul play, that they basically said that Andrew had fallen overboard. Maybe when he was going to the toilet, he's fallen off. And that took months for that inquiry and several thousand dollars of translating fees to find out what that result was and then they were happy to release the boat. But in the meantime, Simon, we had him moved off the boat, much against, you know, his desire and he was blueing and carrying on and we paid for a caretaker, a local person to go on board and in the meantime another um, young friend of Andrew's turns up in Galapagos and saw the Australian flag flying on, oh, my God, it's Kailia and with great excitement went to see Andrew to then find out that he wasn't there. So he sat and penned an amazing letter to us as well. And, yeah, so the boat stayed in Galapagos for probably four months. Can I ask um, if DFAT were interested at all? To start with, yes. They were um, very accommodating and set things up for, but they wouldn't get involved because if there was a crime they don't have, they're not, authorised to get involved. They're just the link between the Spanish authorities and us. And because my, I'm a suspicious person, but I just think, well, it could be a crime scene, that boat. We don't know what's happened, you know? Well, as it turned out, we were able to engage the services of a young guy, Pete, and one of his buddies. We got these young guys to bring the boat back. That cost something like $40,000 to get the boat back. And we got it back to Coffs Harbour. And up until then, we couldn't interest the authorities in Australia either because the boat was overseas, there was no body, what is it that you're reporting? But as soon as the boat got back into Australian waters, unbeknownst to us, the authorities were onto it. Once again, because Andrew had a history, they knew Simon and they had great interest that they were sailing together. So the boat gets back into Coffs Harbour. We were at Coffs at the time when it came in. My mum and dad came down as well and both my sisters and it was it was awful to see this boat be brought in and put up on a, on a hard stand and all these possessions coming off it and just oh. dreadful. And a lot of local interest because so many people in Coffs knew Andrew and knew of Simon, but the local authorities, Maritime, the police, Border Control, Customs, took over the boat and went over it with a fine tooth comb and nothing was found. No drugs were found, no blood evidence was found, you know, nothing at all. The next year we spent giving our statements to the drug and border control people, to the water police. There was a lot of interest shown and as a result we finally got to be able to, for them to agree to do coronial inquest, which was the most amazing experience. And ah, so even though they found nothing on the boat, they didn't find any drugs, they still they wanted yeah. to pursue it. Um, and I, I, I believe that was because they believed that he was a person of interest. So it did take a lot of work and a lot of the authorities getting statements from all of us and piecing it all together to then go. And, of course, with no body, that makes it very hard as well. They're like, well, we don't have any evidence the fellow that, that acted for the Crown had very little sailing knowledge but acquired heaps in the lead-up to, mm. to the case so that he understood all the terminology and what boats can and can't do and what sails were this and blah, blah. Um, and Jeff, my husband, worked um, very closely with him. And they had um, witnesses like one of Simon's ex-girlfriends 
who claimed that he once said to her, the only way to get the boat that I'd like is to go sailing with someone and push them overboard. I was like, hello? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, They Mm -hmm. had a lot of, uh, a couple of boat builders. They had a a fellow who heads up the, he's a a senior anaesthetist in Brisbane. And when there's search and rescues, be it from the sea or be it as a result of a fire, water or the snow, he's the one that determines based on the conditions how long a person or persons would be able to survive. And his evidence went for about, no, oh, maybe 40 minutes on camera from one of the hospitals in Brisbane that he works at. And he went through, Simon at this point was um, in the witness box, he went through basically three scenarios. Um, if Andrew just fell overboard, not pushed her in, just fell overboard, mm. how long he could survive. So no injuries, no nothing, how long you could survive, how long you can tread water, how long you can float, and it was probably two days, maybe three at the most. The second scenario was that if he hit the water and he had been injured, the chance of survival obviously is, is lessened. And he went through how your body breaks down bit by bit. And then the last part was if had you been deceased when he went overboard. And, of course, chance of survival. There's no survival because you're already deceased. It was really hard to listen to, but it sort of gave an understanding, a picture of where the boat was, where he, what he might have been doing. And how plausible or implausible Simon's story is. Yes. Because if you put all of everything he's saying together, the waters are so calm the boat's not moving and it's so boring I've slept all day yeah and this incredibly experienced sailor he's been sailing for over 40 years has fallen overboard on those Mm. in those conditions if he did then he should have been able to float and tread water and survive for two days but you're saying that for three days you searched and didn't find him yeah so once the coroner thanked this um, doctor for his evidence or his you know, opinion on what was happening, mm. said goodbye to him, she then went back to the courtroom area and she said to, to Simon, so, Mr Golding, what do you make of that evidence? And he just turned to her and said, oh, I wasn't listening. Oh, what? I wasn't listening. Robin here. I'm really enjoying continuing to be a subscriber. And as a Queenslander, I just always love it when Michelle has the insider info on (laughs) Queensland and the politics, because it certainly is very different up here. Well, Robin, do I have some Queensland insider info for you today? It's not about politics or anything like that, but there's a moment during this conversation in which Louise Witten tells us this story when one incredible development triggers a memory for me. And as you'll hear, it blows both of our minds a bit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Coming up on Australian True Crime, the extraordinary development that changed the trajectory of Simon Golding's life. And it took place in Queensland. Don't forget, you can always leave us a voice message and become part of the show like Robin did by clicking the link in the show notes or on our Facebook page. Tell us about the outcome of the inquest, because again, unfortunately, you know, oftentimes the inquest is something that families really hold on to. You know, we want an inquest, they have to push so hard to get it, and then they end up disappointed with the yes. inquest because ultimately... It's, it's just a step, usually. It's not going to lead to a conviction. It's just going to lead to findings and Correct. the coroner's going to make suggestions. They're, go they're going to say, this is what I think should happen. Were you confident on the day? Did you think it had been a successful inquest when you were there for the day of the findings? We did because of the, of, um, the performance of Simon and his lack of interest, lack of concern or care or... I used to give him stink eye some mornings when you get there and he had never once approached the family to say, you guys have got it wrong, Andy mm. was a buddy of mine, nothing, I, you know, nothing, never, ever, ever did he try to defend himself in any way. And obviously you'd done a lot of investigation before the coroner even yes. started. I mean, you as a family yes. had. Yeah. We had. Yes, all the mapping. And my mum, my, when I listened to your podcast the other day on the Claremont killer, mm -hmm. is it Wendy Davis? Yeah. She used a term that, that really struck with me too. It was like, don't make a fuss, don't make a fuss. And that was how my mum was. Oh, Louise, don't go making a fuss. I think she was, my dad said, keep going, girl, you're doing a good job. But um, my mum was, I think she was fearful that something might come out, that Andrew had done something wrong, that he was involved in a criminal activity. And I knew in my heart that he wouldn't because I knew that he knew if he got involved in, in any drug deal with his boat, he'd, he'd go to jail to start with, but he'd lose his boat and that's it. That's his life gone. So, you know, I, I never had a doubt that, and I'm sure they might have been tempted, but no, I knew that he wouldn't. We head back to the court for the coroner to give her findings. About three months had passed, I think, and he wasn't there. I think, oh, that's interesting. You don't want to know what your fate is. She did her summary and she said that she was recommending, I have no powers as a coroner, but I recommend that he stand trial for the murder of Andrew. Oh, my God. And also I wonder if there was, you know, a place in your mum's heart where she didn't want to believe her son had been murdered. Yes, true. I'm sure that was a lot to do with it, yeah. But I did say to her prior to the coroner's case, would you like to write a letter then, Mum? Why don't you put, in, put down in writing how you're feeling or what you'd like if you were able to, what you would say. And she did and I was able to read that in the in the court and I think that also um, described our family as being a normal family and, yeah, for a mother to write a letter like that about a son was really quite moving. He wasn't in the court. She handed down her decision. We all left with a great relief that something was going to happen and that our fears and suspicions were supported by the coroner was Mary Jerram and she was amazing, the most beautiful, beautiful woman. Every morning she would acknowledge you after anything in evidence or questioning that might have been a little bit hard to hear or a bit moving. She'd, how are you going over there, Louise? You're all right? Oh, yes, good I'm good, her. thank you. She was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. She handled him. You could tell after from the lunchtime day one onwards that she'd worked him out. As professional as she was, you could tell that by the some of the way that he would answer a question. On one occasion, uh, evidence dirt goes from the person that's putting up the evidence, which was the guy supporting the coroner. It goes to his assistant, and it goes past the his counsel, 
Simon's Council and then up to him. And then it was to find its way up to the top to the bench of the coroner. And whatever it was this day, I can't remember, but he's looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And she said, Mr Golding, when you're ready, if you could pass it on. And he just kept looking and looking. And Mr Golding, when you're ready, if you could pass He said, I haven't finished yet. Just like that. And she's like, I'm like... And every time it happened, I'm like, yes, that's another hole in the nail in the coffin for you because you're, yeah. Arrogant. I know. Arrogant idiot. Yeah, so that's what happened. In the October, she referred it to the Commonwealth DPP. I got a copy of her report um, and then it was just a matter of waiting. So every couple of weeks I'd ring, have you got it yet, you know, and I oh, know we've got a backlog, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I was sitting this morning um, with Jeff up in Neutral Bay having a coffee and I got a phone call from my cousin in Thailand. I'm going, oh, it's Robert, what's he want? And he said, have you seen the paper? And I went, uh, no. He said, Golding's just been arrested for Australia's biggest drug haul. <gasps> so, oh, my God, everything just went crazy. I'm on the phone to Emily, ran across the road, got the paper, on the phone to her, guess what, Simon's just been arrested. So it was early October that the coroner handed down her findings. And on the 11th of October, 464 kilos, $1.8 They thought they were coming into Port Macquarie, but they're actually coming into Scarborough, you know, Scarborough in Brisbane. The- You're not going to believe this. I was there. Scarborough Marina. I had no idea. My ex-husband and I were there having lunch. We saw it go down. <laughs> I can't believe this. I didn't realise this was his bust. Yes. We were down there a couple of months ago with our neighbour who has a boat down there and it was so eerie. So you know eerie. exactly where I mean. It's so beautiful I there. know exactly where you are, yep. And it's so quiet and you yep. couldn't, we, we couldn't believe it. We're like, what the hell? Uh-huh. My God. So that was like, oh, my God, the whole everything just went went absolutely crazy and the guy that I believe was instrumental in making sure that we got to have an inquest, he and his team were holed up in an apartment in Port Macquarie, looking out over the harbour because that's where Simon and, and his new mate left from and they believe that's where they'd be coming back to. But something happened, they had another storm at sea and had to cut short their journey and they ended up in Scarborough. They went to the marina office and asked how much a cab would be to Port Macquarie and the girl said, I don't even know where Port Macquarie is. It's a long way in a cab. A uh, long way. I can tell a you long that. Way. That's unbelievable. And so is that it was that the tip off that these we, these guys walked in and asked for a cab? No, tour? no, because they'd been under surveillance. They had um air surveillance going on for ages. They knew where they were. So this guy, um, the guy that headed up the border control, he was in in Port Macquarie. and once these the two of them got arrested, they then got the news that that they'd arrested, well, there were three actually. And he said, my career highlight was when they said Simon Charles Golding. That was the beginning of another chapter. It was, wasn't it? Because I know I was reading that, I don't know if this was evidence given at the inquest, that there was a rumour going around that another fisherman in Port Macquarie had been offered money to sail to South America and bring cocaine back to Australia. Was that evidence given in the inquest or was that no, just a rumour? No, I'm, I'm not aware of that, no. Might I just think that be... was just a rumour around Port Macquarie. Do you think that's what Golding was trying to do in Andrew's boat? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. At, at the time of the inquest, there was no motive, but once he does gets caught for this huge big drug bust, it didn't take him very long to hook up with somebody else who had a boat who agreed, and that the man that he went out with had a, a little boy seven or eight years of age at the time and he's in jail for 30 years, you know, like yeah. awful, awful. When the drug bust happened... All the authorities that knew that they were going to, because they'd been under surveillance and they knew where they were and they knew they were coming into Port Macquarie, all of a sudden you're having to involve the local police who had no idea about the deal at all or about the whole case. So all the local authorities in a different state to what you've been operating in, their workforce, task force, was headed up by quite a few people that were all looking after different logistics of it and all of a sudden you've got... The boats arrived hundreds of kilometres away from where you expected in a totally different jurisdiction and almost a bit of damage control, you know, like well, who takes over and you're doing a drug bust here and there's stuff on the boat and, yeah, it was chaotic. 
the case fell over a couple of times because of um, conflicting police statements and Simon and Terry Elfar and the, uh, the German guy that was on the other mothership, none of them gave evidence. And basically what their defence was trying to say is that there, there was one block of cocaine that was blocks of cocaine were all numbered and there were two block 13s and they're saying that the police numbered two the same so they could take one and profit from it and you know, and the the judge kept reminding them that um, one kilo is a sufficient as a crime for importing drugs so don't worry about yeah you're done so has golding been charged with your brother's murder what happened no. no what so what happened Soon after the drug bust, um, with my following up as well, we got a letter from the Commonwealth DPP, which I have here as well, just a couple of paragraphs saying that they'd reviewed the case and they didn't believe there was sufficient evidence for a trial to continue. And But should anything come up in the future, any new evidence come up, to please let them know. Well, that's what I was talking about before. So that's so frustrating because you did get the recommendations that you hoped for from yes. the coroner. And yeah. then after that, subsequently, you even got more evidence. Correct. I, I had, have not gone back to them to say along the lines of, well, if you, if you didn't believe there was a motive, we now believe that there is a motive. Mm. It, and it sort of gave, so that they were in court for, was September 2015 that he was sentenced so that whole court process took a couple of years as well. Yes, so at eight years by that stage. Yes, exactly. So, and I have to admit that by then I went to the, the trial almost every day. I missed a couple of days and Rach would go. And just to see his total arrogance, you look around to see who was there. On the day that they did the verdict, he turned up in a suit and Havianas and mirrored sunglasses and saw the girl from ABC Australian Story and said, oh, I've got a big crowd here today, Caitlin. And it's like, you for real? This is real life, you know. This is not a stage. He was sentenced a month later. There was no emotion. The the Elfar guy, he got two more years because he, he got a little bit argumentative at one stage. Oh, something I didn't tell you. The judge made it very clear to the jury and to the media that were there, there weren't that many, many from the media in the initial stages, but to the media as well, and to the offenders that don't enter into social media, don't go making any comments, this is this court isn't closed, but I will close it if I need to, um, and also to, like to the jurors so that they're not going to be influenced by what the media might say. Anyway, um, we got in there one particular day. The judge finally comes in. And she announces that she's closing the court for the rest of the day. That uh, Mr. Golding, you you made contact via LinkedIn with my assistant. Tried to get a date with her. Oh, oh, God. I know. So she said, um, totally against the contact that you've made is totally inappropriate, and it's totally against my instructions before as well with what what is acceptable, da-da-da, and she revoked their bail. Well, they nearly wet themselves. And because it was because they were being trialled together, not only was Golding's bail revoked, so was Elfar. So instead of residing on the Gold Coast and coming up for court hearings, they, yeah, they went out to Wakehall. And that was one of the best days of my life. So I didn't really, um, I had run out of emotional energy and not certainly not commitment, but um, to started all over again. Let's go back now to the Commonwealth DPP. And, but, you know, the letter's there. They've said if something sort of happens and maybe all I need to do is a quick note to them saying, this has been on my mind ever since I received your letter. I now have a situation where, you know, back in 2010, the person on the boat with my brother was arrested with this haul. Perhaps now that might be enough. I don't know. On the very first day of the of the inquest, there was um, an ABC reporter there, court reporter there, and in the first break she came up and made herself known to us and we were all, it's all foreign to us. We're like, oh, I don't think we should be talking to people. And so he said to the guy assisting the coroner in our break, this lady's come up and said, you know, if you, at any stage you want to sort of chat through things, you know, 
That's what we're here to help you with. And he said, go ahead, do what you guys need to be raising as much awareness as possible. So that was young Emily, who was an ABC radio reporter and was filling in because one of her colleagues who normally does the court reporting was away sick or on holidays or something. And that's how we met Emily. And she, to this day, has become a very close friend. She's the most beautiful person. She smelt something really weird right early on in the piece and she was the instigator of the Australian story. She went back to her office after the inquest was over and said to a a, a colleague of hers who worked on Australian story, I've got an excellent story for you guys to cover. I've just covered it in the court, in the coroner's court, da-da-da-da. So she presented a, a brief rundown to them and they showed interest After the coronial inquest, Australian stories started there, filming and interviewing. Hello, I'm ABC journalist Emily Burke. Six years ago, I covered a story about two men who went to sea, but only one came home. Well, how did you feel about that when you watched it? Because I I always wonder about that. You know, you know how your interviews are going and how you feel about what you're saying. But then when you sit down to watch it and you're say, being exposed to his interviews and what he's saying about it all. Have you told the complete truth about this matter? Yes, I have. I'm not pretending to be an angel, but I'm not a murderer. How, how was that? It just reinforced even more how cold he was about things and how it was just a, you know, a great story that he's part of. He's the main star and, you know, there's no, he didn't show any, you know, sadness or emotion or anything, just further reinforces what we're dealing with here. They're saying the facts are, 10 years previously, I said to someone, I'm going to push someone overboard to get a, get a boat. I was saying I didn't like Andy's boat. I ended up hating Andy's boat. I never liked Andy's boat. I could quite easily go to any marina and pick out the boat of my choice and take it. I don't want to be an angel. I lead an adventurous life. I'm not going to abide by all laws, no. But I do have good morals. The whole thing's a tragedy, but the fact is people fall off boats. Plenty of people fall off boats. Have you ever been given a sort of an official theory, either through the the inquest or through the trial, subsequent trials, about how they think Andrew met this guy, Simon, what Andrew thought was happening, like what they think happened? As far as what Andrew thought about Simon, he every couple of, I think there were two listings in his logbook about Simon and in one of the letters that he wrote there was a, a, something about Simon but it was never ever my mate Simon or we went surfing today or it was, they were really from two different sort of walks of life um, and I guess that Simon had money enabled Andrew to probably head off on his trip earlier yeah. than what he normally would. So that's all right. Like, no crime committed in that. No. So, But do you think that Simon was planning to sort of sneak the drugs back on board without Andrew knowing what it was? And if so, like how physically how much is 283 kilograms of cocaine, for example, which is what he ended up being busted with? Okay. It, it basically filled the boat blatantly, nothing all covered up. There's some photos of the, all the blocks all lined up. It would be a trailer load, all in two kilo blocks, like bricks. What we think happened is that they've left Tahiti, they're out in the middle of nowhere. Simon in his travels has organised this, you know, the drug deal. He would need it for Andrew to cooperate, otherwise it couldn't go ahead. You can't transfer all these drugs from the mothership onto your boat without the cooperation. Oh, so at some stage he had to tell him. Yes, right. he would have had to have done. Or, or he could have gone, he won't go along with it, so I'm going to get rid of him anyway. Yeah, I see. But we we sort of think that if it was, uh, if he mentioned to Andrew that this is what's going to happen, he Andrew would have said, no way, no way in the world, I'm not involved in that at all. Um, and that would have become evident to Simon that it, he didn't have someone that he was going to work with. So we we have no further use for you can't. So that that's our theory, and then of course he returns to Australia. The inquest takes place. Well, he doesn't get Andrew's boat to start with. The inquest takes place, and it didn't take very long at all for post inquest for him to set up yet another like Australia's second largest drug hall. And yeah, off he's gone. So 
his his motive, there's the motive. If you didn't think there was a motive, there is one there. I need a boat. I need a boat that's going to be big enough and strong enough to be able to bring this shipment back. So the relief when when the judge handed down the sentences was like, phew, well, at least he ain't out on the streets still living living his wonderful life on the canals of the Gold Coast, having a wonderful time. I feel proud that, that we've fought like we did to make sure that what could have been, what was trying to be positioned as someone just falling off a boat ended up being a lot more sinister than that. And I remember saying to mum once, mum, like you're saying, don't make a fuss, but if it was me and I went missing in suspicious circumstances and you buggers didn't do anything, I, know. I wouldn't be happy. I, I know, be right? happy. I always think the same thing. Yeah. And I always say, I, I like, I would say to you, I hope I would have someone like you fighting for me if if that was me. Oh, thank you. He says, um, this is a big letter that didn't ever get posted. This is talking about um, uh, the cyclone-prone Western Pacific at the time of year and uh, what do I do, go back to coughs and work more and whatever else. And he's gone, nah, fuck it. I'll eat barnacles if I have to to keep going. I've still got shitloads of food on board and I figure whilst at sea you don't spend anything even if you wanted to. Catch fish, read, sleep, eat, sleep, read, eat, sleep and so on and on and on. It's easy. Thank you to our guest Louise Whitten and thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.